Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the member model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $60 a year, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $120 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast, not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. Josh Marshall podcast with Kate Riga. Today is a kind of special episode uh, because we've actually had to delay recording this episode of the podcast for two days. We normally record on uh, Wednesdays and now it is Friday. And the entire reason for that and the reason that we had to twice delay recording is because of the speaker's race which is going to be really the only thing we're going to talk about in this episode. And the specific mechanics of that is that our my co-host, Kate, is also one of our Capitol Hill reporters. And we've had this kind of, I don't know what to call it, sort of, you know, out of control bender speakers drama continuing through the week. And basically, when we need Kate to be up there dealing with whatever those guys come up with over the course of the day, she can't be where she needs to be to record the episode with me. And it's not just a matter of of, of where she is. We need her reporting and writing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, just before we started recording just now, uh, I don't know, hour ago, hour and a half ago, something like that, uh, Jim Jordan lost his third vote on the floor for speaker. And then Republicans got back together and they basically voted to de-speaker designate Jim Jordan. So basically they held, it, it wasn't another caucus election. It was, are we going to unnominate him to be speaker? To kind of take the football back from him, and that won by a pretty dramatic margin. If I, I think I have the numbers right, in the third, his third floor vote for speaker, he got 195 Republican votes. Maybe it was 194, but you know, give or take. And then he fell to I think 82 in the caucus vote. So a big delta, and it gives you a sense of how much bleed there was to go if they had actually followed through on this you know kind of dramatic threat that they were going to keep everybody 
through the weekend to keep voting and voting and voting and voting until they finally elected Jim Jordan speaker. You know, one of the things they were talking about, his partisans were talking about today before the caucus finally pulled the plug on him was, well, he he deserves at least as many votes as as Kevin McCarthy got. That's not fair. And I think it was Kevin McCarthy got 15 votes. Uh, Jordan got only three. And that was sort of, that was what was so weird about this, like coming up with these just kind of like inane explanations for what what anybody is even doing or, you know, kind of what's happening. I want to say one thing really briefly before we go to Kate and Kate's the one with all the information here. So we're going to kind of, well, we're going to let her, let her tell us what's going on. The big thing that comes to mind to me, obviously everything in this like three week drama now, it's a little less than three weeks since McCarthy was booted, but you know, it started before he was actually ousted. In this three week, week drama, Everything, all these issues, all these fissures in the Republican caucus, they all came to the surface. We know that. And that's why there's been all this drama, you know, McCarthy versus Freedom Caucus, McCarthy loyalists versus Scalise loyalists, all these different kind of things. But the big thing to me is that this last three weeks, the sort of the grinding process has clearly created new facts within that caucus that did not exist before this whole thing got underway. I don't think there would have been really many, if any, holdouts after McCarthy was ousted if everybody just kind of said, okay, Scalise, he's next in line. You know, he's more conservative, but not too conservative. You know, okay, it's Scalise and everybody can kind of vote for Scalise. But now, Clearly, you've got people who like their whole identity is they can't, they will never vote for Steve Scalise to be speaker or Jim Jordan to be speaker or McCarthy to be speaker. It's like locked in. These are new things that were generated by, the, by this kind of grinding process. And the big one tied to Scalise's election as speaker designate when, um, you know, they had an election. He won the caucus election. And then all the people, not all the people, but most of the people who voted against him just said, okay, cool, but like, I'm still for Jim Jordan. Sorry. And like the whole election just didn't matter. And that's really what took this to a different level when the Jordan people and, you know, are they the Jordan people? Are they the McCarthy loyalists who are kind of propping up Jordan to kind of you know, in anger over what happened to McCarthy and trying to kind of, you know, prevent Steve Scalise. But after the Jordan people said, yeah, that election didn't matter. And then they came back and said, well, but now Jim's been elected. So everybody's got to get on board. And clearly what blew this thing up is there were, you know, first a handful, then 20, then 22, then 25 saying, no way, no way. You are not going to say the caucus election doesn't matter. And then now we've got to honor your caucus. No way, dude. So there's this grinding process, you know, kind of cutting through new flesh on each turn of the, you know, turn of the cog or turn of the whatever has created new facts that make this caucus harder to govern. Okay, Kate, what's the story? 
where to start? So I guess, okay, the latest today was we had the morning Jordan vote, which everybody knew was going to fail. And everybody was pretty certain was going to fail by worse than the first two votes failed. And that happened. And then Republicans went to go conference and, like you say, had a secret ballot vote, which is why Jordan bled so heavily, because as one of the kind of never Jordans, Mike Kelly from Pennsylvania, was telling a group of us when he came out, a lot of people were only going to go against Jordan in private after all these you know, he had mobilized this kind of right-wing media machine to force people to vote for him. And that immediately became death threats and threats to people's spouses and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So behind closed doors, he hemorrhaged support because all of a sudden people don't have to kind of attach their name to the opposition anymore. And it just became even clearer that he was even deader than he was an hour ago. So everybody kind of- personal security is expensive. Right. So everyone comes out of this meeting, um, you know, clutching pizza boxes. And basically the schedule now is that anyone who wants to run has to tell the conference by Sunday at noon. And then on Monday night, they're going to have an internal candidate forum and then a vote on Tuesday. Now, after this week we've had, you can't put too many eggs in the basket of certainly when a vote will be because we've had so many be canceled or pushed back or, or whatnot. And I do think there's a chance that it's a very quick turnaround to go from a multi-candidate forum to a vote when we already, as of right now, have like five or six people declared for speaker. So it's going to be a super crowded race to begin with. So that's kind of where we are now. It's been just a crazy, grueling, circular week where I think the defining dynamic was we don't know what we're going to do next. And it's less embarrassing to have the appearance of potential movement than to admit that, you know, Jordan is dead or Scalise is dead. That's how it's been. And the only real kind of, I think, moment of real possibility was I don't even remember now. It was yesterday or it was Thursday when, or Thursday or Wednesday, when people started really talking about what we'd been at TPM reporting on for a while, this idea of expanding Patrick McHenry's pro tem powers, Um, you know, because he's, he's not that objectionable in general. Most people are okay with him. Democrats are okay with him because he voted to certify the election and raise the debt ceiling, which is their, their kind of big deal breakers. I wasn't clear on that. So I had heard that he had voted not to uh, certify, but he did. So that he was did. OK. Yep. That's that's a big that's a big deal. And Democrats, let's be clear, hate Jim Jordan. Like it is palpable when you talk to them. He is not the kind of candidate that they're going to, you know, l- let bygones be bygones kind of thing. And with McHenry, there, there was still a lot we never knew because it was pretty clear that Democrats were not just going to give even if he's kind of unobjectionable, they weren't going to give him their votes for free. And they were never kind of willing to negotiate in public, which makes sense. But so we never had a real clear grasp of what would happen because before that plan ever came into fruition, uh, Republicans had another conference meeting where they almost physically fought each other and then came out saying, this McHenry thing is unconstitutional. It's not going to work. And the, the reality of the situation is, Mathematically, could you have a handful of Republicans kind of join with the Democrats and expand McHenry's powers and be done? Yeah. But politically, that's just not viable. If you're part of that handful of Republicans, your political career is over. You know, this was the kind of case where... They were tiring. 
Yeah. As soon yeah. as you have <laughs> any kind of critical mass of Republicans saying like this is abhorrent, you know, waving around their pocket constitutions, this was just dead in the water. And that's what happened. And so that's why we had the third Jordan vote, because Again, it's that dynamic of there's no off ramp, there's nothing else to do, but we look super stupid if we have like nothing, no movement at all, you know, no plan, no anything. And that's why we voted for him yet again, even after last night when we were kind of staking out where he was trying to sway the holdouts. They came out and they were like, yeah, no one in there changed his mind. Uh, This is over. He doesn't have the votes to be speaker. And yet we still voted again afterwards. So this is interesting. I I hadn't. I hadn't been thinking in these terms. I had I had seen this as Jordan's got the, you know, got the football. I guess when you're designee, you're sort of, I guess, informally, it's up to you how many times you vote. You're kind of already speaker. You make the decisions in some, I don't know, it was always a little unclear to me. People were asking me sort of like, can he just do what, can he just keep holding votes forever? Like who decides what he can do? And I guess that's not official, but sort of yeah, it's, I think it's more a social dynamic than everyone, anything else that people were, you know, what we kept hearing after the third vote when people were asking, is Jordan just going to keep running it back and hope that it changes is people are saying, well, that's Jim's decision. I want to let him, you know, they are, they're trying to kind of respect him and not bum rush him out of the seat. Although they kind of did end well, up doing <laughs> They both bum rushed him. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So, so. I had been thinking about this as, you know, Freedom Caucus, Trump rules, you know, kind of, no, you know, not taking no for an answer at, at kind of every level. But what you're saying is that an element of this was, or I guess part of what made that possible for Jordan is everyone else is thinking, we have no idea what else we're going to do. So, okay, just you keep voting because otherwise we have literally no idea of anything else. So why not? Exactly. And in terms of the kind of Trumpian my way or the highway thing, that was just a little bit less salient this time because the, you know, the eight that had dethroned McCarthy, their power is solely focused on like how much they can be the center of attention. And in terms of Jordan, they're part of the masses, right? The the never Jordans are not the same people as the ones who deposed McCarthy. They're they're different camps. So yeah, although I think we, it, although we did have it we did have this one guy, Ken Buck, who I think was in both groups, right? I mean he's the least figurable person. I mean yeah. he's like a hardcore total hardcore weirdo. And then at the end, like I can never vote for Jim Jordan because he, I, I'm not sure it's that his involvement with Jan 6th or not certifying the election. Right. And I'm yeah. like, okay, dude, I can respect that. But like, who yeah. are you? Right. Exactly. <laughs> I know. And it's just so funny because the anti-McCarthy camp did not like losing the center of attention. These are the Matt Gateses and the Nancy Maces and such. And so today I was at this um, scrum with Nancy Mace and she's like, we're putting out a letter and here's what the letter is going to say. It's going to say... If you vote for Jordan, we will let ourselves be voted out of the conference, off the committees, out of conference. And like when we kind of brought this up to some of the holdouts, they were like, so like why? You know, it's just this like desperate ploy to like get themselves back in the center of attention at all costs by pretending this is some kind of like falling on their sword thing. It's just totally bizarre. Well, I think, you know, it shows at some level you know, that, I mean, there's the holding the stage, 
attention seeking, but there also is this mentality of, you know, you're you're doing this because you hate Matt Gates, right? And I think with those 20 or so, they're like, yeah, I hate Matt Gates, but I'm doing this for other like what? Like oh oh like you're going to I'm going to kick you off. I mean, it's it kind of goes back to you know, uh, Marjorie Green and Gosar losing their committee assignments three years ago or whenever that was. And then they, what is it? They did Ilhan Omar. I, you know, all that back and forth nonsense. And they're still kind of operating in that, in, in those terms. And as you say, like most of these people are like, so like what? It, it's just not, it's weird. Yeah. And it's just, it's been so strange these past few days to see all these efforts being taken to empower Jim Jordan in particular, because he's just, you know, he's a firebrand. Like that's what he's been since he's come on the scene. It's not, you know, McCarthy, obviously there are a lot of things people don't like about him, but he's a guy's guy. He's supposed to, he's like friendly. He's nice to people. That's kind of how he's gotten power. Jim Jordan is an asshole and like has and never been. Brand. That's his yeah. brand. Yeah. And yeah, has never yeah. been a, in a position in the caucus to be like, you know, he, he would t- tell some people, you know, I came to your district XYZ, but that's not his thing. You know, he's not like a prolific fundraiser who kind of comes to have your back in a tight election. That's not what he does. I mean, for most of his career, it's only recently that he's been in the echelons of kind of the leadership establishment party, really only months for most of it. He's been the far right break everything Matt Gates of yesteryear guy. Totally, totally. So it's just he's not he's never someone who everyone was going to have all these warm fuzzy feelings about. And then on top of that, this has just thrown into such stark relief the idea that the Republican Party is a complete hodgepodge right now. Like you've got the dying out element of like the kind of Paul Ryan's, we're going to cut the entitlement programs and like that's what we're the policy wonks and the austerity, whatever. You've got like a, a shri- ever shrinking contingency of those people. And then you have this new Trumpian wave of people who are, you know, I, I want to go viral. I want to go on Fox like policy oriented, basically not at all. And if they were to be, they wouldn't have this old kind of neocon thing because they're the party's base has completely shifted in the past two elections. Like it wasn't that long ago that Republicans are winning the college educated vote. That doesn't happen anymore. So the priorities are different and there's no central thing that you can kind of be like, we're all Republicans. We need to join together to pass XYZ. There's nothing like that anymore. So you're solely dealing on a personality level, which is basically impossible because even when you've got like, you know, the affable, friendly guys, then you're going to have a contingent of the party that, you know, Matt Gatesian like wants, wants to have attention on themselves. It's not even, you know, we're in this place where you just see how fractured the party has become and how differently incentivized the different wings of it are. And it's crazy because you've just heard, you know, we keep hearing all week, like Republican members saying things that Democrats are going to put right into campaign ads, you know, like the Democrats didn't have trouble with this. Like, why can't we get our shit together? Like the Democrats, you know, like there, there's no spin on this stuff. All of them are saying like, this is embarrassing. This is chaotic. We, we don't deserve to lead. I mean, it's, a complete disaster for House Republicans. I mean, one thing I think is important for our listeners, and it gets pushed to the background, 
although I think it is an underlying driver of these things. It hasn't affected the Democrats, but it's made some of this possible. And that is that in the old days, and by the old days, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, maybe, if you are a, a kind of, you know, freshman, you've been, you're, you know, you've been a couple terms in Congress, and you come in and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to vote for our speaker candidate. What will immediately happen is the leadership of the caucus will say, okay, you have no committee memberships and your, your, your funding for your campaign, we're cutting it all off. So you're dead. You are over, completely over. Now, why can't that happen now? The one thing I think we saw in the, what is it? Is this the 118th Congress? I, <laughs> whatever mm. Congress this is, the previous one, when Democrats controlled yeah. the House, I think we saw that when they stripped the committee assignments from Marjorie Green or Paul Gosar, no one cares. No one cares. The, for them, that's just sort of like stripping of the, them of the ability of, for like washing the dishes and throwing out the trash. That's just work. Right. That's not that's not for 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 these types. That's just that's more time. You can go on TV and stuff. No one cares. No one really cares about that. And the other thing is that when you, you know, stick it to the man, i.e. Kevin McCarthy or whoever else, you go over to Fox and you raise money off it like Nancy Mace does. So you can see that those two structural things are just not there anymore. And those aren't, um, you know, small online, small donor, email, blah, 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 blah. Now, the good rejoinder is like, those things apply for Democrats too. And they're, they seem to be keeping their shit together. Um, so it's not just that, but it does take away a cudgel from the leadership that this kind of stuff just never would have gotten started at all. And one of the things is that um, I'd have to go down the list, but of that eight that pulled the plug on Kevin McCarthy, I think at least half of them are like maybe in their second term or third term in Congress. They're brand new. They just showed up, right? It, it's it's not the cause, but it's something that in an older political structure, leadership could just shut that shit down, basically. Yeah. And this is also just a direct result of gerrymandering and the fact that mm -hmm, we have mm -hmm. almost no competitive house districts anymore. I mean, if you are running in like most red states, you need a box of hair with the letter R next to your name and you'll win, you know? So there's also, I think, a increasingly lessened dependency on the traditional party apparatuses to, you know, fund your race and do your campaign because it's obviously you still have to fundraise, but it's it's not that hard. You know, you just kind of have to survive the primary and then you're smooth sailing. And and with the primary that you're the only primary you're not going to survive is from the right. Right. You know, once in a blue moon, I guess Cawthorn is the, you know, the the exception that proves the rule. But that is that I mean a real, ex I mean, and he, he was like totally feral. I mean, you know, there was that whole thing where he was saying, oh, my colleagues are having orgies and they <laughs> invited me to an orgy. That even in this kind of caucus, clearly that was just like, everybody goes to Kevin McCarthy and they're like, dude, get rid of this dude. This dude yeah. is out of control. But, and, and your point there is exactly right. There's the old ability to cut off the money. But even with that, 
you know, with uh, Lauren Boebert is in trouble because unlike almost all of these people, she's in a swing district. She's not in a, in a, in a strongly Republican district. But, you know, as you say, if you're like, oh, you cut me off, like, okay, well, I'm in an, you know, 80% Republican district. So, you know, Kevin McCarthy's not going to come and campaign for me. Oh, no. Yeah. Right? So you have all these, all these factors coming. Now, let me ask you this. Okay. So, so we have the vote this morning. Uh, we have the secret caucus vote early afternoon. What, what was the mood coming out of that secret caucus vote? Honestly, relief because okay, people didn't yeah. want to stay over the weekend. And I think there was some sense, this idea of like the war of attrition method, everyone kind of knew wasn't going to work. And this is more West Wingy than ever going to really happen. But there was a thought of like, if you're going to do this all weekend long, you got to keep your members on a really tight leash and make sure they don't leave town. Um, because, and this is like something the Beltway insidery people love to be like, if Republicans leave, Jeffries could be elected. Like that's never going to happen. They're not going to let that happen. But there is the reality of like, you can't let people go home. Some people are going to have big banner events this weekend. Some, you know, people already have their plane tickets, blah, blah, blah. So I think there was relief. There was um, a ton of people came out and said, like, we need this weekend because tensions are so high right now that, like, people are going to kill each other if you don't, like, take a few days to cool off. And there's also... This is the strategy of what they've been doing, running it back, voting again, voting again, voting again, trying to like not give people enough time to develop opposition to whoever's on deck. And that just hasn't worked at all. No one is moving. And again, it's because particularly with Jordan, the disputes are not policy based. They are personality based. And so that's not going to change anytime soon. And with McHenry not wanting the job, and I think he's probably the only person who could have done it on such short notice or who could have amassed the necessary votes. It's just, you know, now you've got these guys, I could say their names and our listeners probably have never heard of them because they're like not the big stars, you know, and in the house, even more than the Senate, it's just, you got so many people that you're only going to have heard of like 10 of them. And now you've got these kind of backbenchy Republicans being like, chance of a lifetime, right? Like it's not every so often that a rank and filer just gets to be like, you know, put me in coach, I'll do it. And right, maybe right. if I, I say he and I don't say she because no women are part of this conversation. And if he is like affable and liked enough, who knows, you know, what else has he been doing? He's not been bomb throwing. He's like sitting on the ag committee or whatever. Right, right. I mean, th there was, um, it's funny, this reminds me of basically how Denny Hastert became speaker because this was in the tumult after the uh, 1998 uh, midterm election where Republicans had a huge disappointment. They would have thought they were going to, you know, ride the Clinton Lewinsky scan, blah, 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 blah. When they have a real disappointing result, basically that's it for Gingrich. It, everybody turns on him, blah, 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 blah. He is... Uh, exposed as having an affair with the woman who is now his wife. Um, so next, you go to this guy, uh, Livingston from Louisiana. Uh, you're, they're about to vote for him. And then he is exposed having an affair. And so it's this, <laughs> it's this same kind of like, 
you know, kind of pandemonium sort of what are we going to do next? And I remember it very clearly because I wasn't down there, but I was covering it from a distance, you know, covering it for a salon. And basically, there was a point everybody was like, Denny, Denny, <laughs> it's got to be Denny. It's got to be Denny. And I think he was like, like the chief deputy whip. So he wasn't unknown. He was in the leadership, uh, you know, subordinate role, you know, a subordinate role in the lowest leadership position. And the idea was it's Denny. He's this kind of grandfatherly guy. He's not having an affair. Right. This is not this is, you know, he is never. I mean, I'm. T- it, it sounds so hilarious now, but that was really it. He is like the normiest dude there is. I mean, irony of ironies, um, but but I mean, uh, the irony of so of such profound proportions. It's 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 you know beyond imagination. It is striking to me. I mean, just since over the two hours or so since um, Jim Jordan was you know de-designated, it seems like there's at least a half a dozen people who've uh, representatives who have announced their candidacies. I would say that not one of them is anyone that someone who does not cover politics or follow it pretty closely would even have heard their names before. Or even cover House Republicans, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of these are just like, you know, at least one of them is someone who I had never heard of until a couple of days ago. I mean, again, I don't. I don't live this stuff, but these are not not well-known people. And I I do guess that, you know, the the way they're gonna f- thread this needle is you need someone who it's almost like what the first president Bush did with David Souter. You come up with someone, no one's ever heard of him before. There's no track record really. So there's kind of nothing there for either side to get too bent out of shape about, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing there for the Gateses to say, hell no, and vice versa. Um, but that can get, th- that can, that can be kind of unstable in its own way, because if the person has no track record, you have no idea what they're about. And being speaker is actually, is actually pretty hard. I mean, you, especially with such a narrow, um, you know, with, with, as we know, with such a, a, a narrow majority. And I mean, let's not forget, it's October 20th in about, you know, three weeks plus, you're going to have the end of this continuing resolution and there's not going to be appropriations bills in, in place. So there's going to be, there's going to have to be another government shutdown, continuing resolution drama that is either going to be resolved by a government shutdown or some cleanish seat. I mean, the same thing that ended the speakership of Kevin McCarthy. And if if you are just some random who's no, no one really knows a lot about, you know, their background, are you going to be able to kind of manage that? You know, negotiating with President Biden, uh, dealing with the Matt Gateses. I mean, <laughs> it's it's you know it's it's not like as it would be in almost every other period in our history. It's not like you're going to have like a honeymoon period. You know, let the let the new guy get his get his sea legs. You know, who knows? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think not that they have the votes to sink it either way, but a key thing to watch for is if. 
whoever kind of emerges from the candidate forum with the momentum, whether they voted to certify the 2020 election or not. It was kind of astounding the degree to which that became the catch-all objection to Jordan. Like that became his whole thing. And obviously- Within within the Republican caucus? I mean, I know it was among Democrats, but I guess it kind of- No, I mean, Republicans generally don't care about that. But that's just how it was kind of labeled, which is interesting just because there's a lot of different stuff you could use about Jordan that is objectionable. You know, he also like has passed zero legislation and is an abortion absolutist and XYZ. But that's the thing that became really easy to cling on to also because what a cohesive narrative, right? He lost the election in 2020 and tried to overturn it. He's losing his speakership election, trying to overturn it. It's just, it's a good in for Democrats Mm -hmm. and it's a good summary of opposition. So I think it's going to be interesting if they pick someone, whichever way they go on it, it's going to be interesting because like you say, I do think Republic or Democrats will have a bit of a trickier time digging in against the person if they are essentially unknown and voted to certify. Right, right. You know? Although there's not that, I mean, well, there's, there's two things here. And this is why I think it paradoxically does have some traction among Republicans, even though, I don't know if it's a majority of the current caucus, it's close to a majority if it's not the majority. But there is this, one of the things, one of the things that came out of this dynamic process was that I think some Republicans up there, even if they weren't saying it explicitly, were saying, you know what? This is the same bullshit from 2020. You lost. Admit you lost and move on because that's how everything works. And so, you know, look, I'm not making any excuses for them, but there were you know, a, a lot of a lot of representatives in 2020 kind of felt they had to had to make that objection. They may not be, you know, that hardcore. Again, not making excuses for them, but that's kind of how that was. But Jim Jordan didn't just make the you know pro forma vote to object. He was tightly, tightly involved in the coup attempt. I mean, he was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee refused to honor this. I mean, so he's deep, deep in it. And I, again, I do think that is one of the things that, that just kind of churned up through this process that a lot of Republicans could sort of see or were forced to look at. This is the same thing. This is the same virus. This is the same pathogen. This is the same process exploding issue in both cases and we can't and we can't function this way. Yeah. You know, one thing on the democratic side of this, this was such a Dems in array week, but almost to a staggering degree. Like members were not freelancing at all. And I would try to have conversations with them where I'd say, you know, is McHenry an acceptable figure to you? Right? And they'd be like, "Well, you know, I want Hakeem Jeffries to be speaker." And you're like, Right. But have you worked with McHenry? Do you find him more palatable than Jordan? You know, they'll dodge around the question. It's like the talking points are not being deviated from at all. And another part of that is, you know, do you have any kind of deal breakers for the next person? It's it's January 6th. It's raising the debt ceiling. All of them just said that kind of exact same thing. 
you know, it's if you're going to empower McHenry, what would you personally like to get in return? Uh, I'm going to let the leadership negotiate that. Like lockstep does not begin to cover it. And I think especially the kind of like Beltway publications often like to home in on splits between like the progressive wing and the more centrist wing. No such split. You know, I talked to Jaya Paul multiple times and it was you'd hear the exact same thing from her than you would from like Nancy Pelosi. It was singing from the same songbook all the way around. They very clearly feel that, you know, Republicans are the sideshow. They're the circus. The best way to respond is to stay entirely unified and then to just send Jeffries out every day to say, we would love to work forward in a bipartisan manner. We must open the House again. The Republicans are in chaos, et cetera, et cetera. It is striking because, you know, it's it's no real surprise that everybody's voting for for Jeffries. But as you say, you could have easily imagined a situation where you got the problem solvers saying, hey, you know, we, we've got a plan to vote for McHenry or do this or, do, you know, just just sort of, you know, every, as you say, everybody freelancing. And that's kind of normal. And it's, and it's, you know, there's in a lot of cases, you would at least have discussions. Maybe mm-hmm. they're not going to make any agreements, but they're at least talking about agreements. And that puts pressure on the leadership. And critically, it gives all those Beltway, uh, Beltway newsletters something to talk about. And as you said, it is, I mean, that that is the surprise to me because I did sort of wonder whether you would have you know, some Dean Phillips types, uh, you know, problem solverish Democrats who, you know, you flip it on the other side. Republicans can only lose four votes. Well, they only need four Democratic votes. And that is just dead silence. As you said, that is just not. And they, I guess they made that when this refresh my memory, but I feel like at the very beginning of this, they had a caucus meeting and like everybody agreed, Hakeem Jeffries is going to make all these decisions. And that's the end of it. It is staggering because with this leadership turnover, when Jeffries was kind of anointed the heir apparent, that was kind of a big deal because the thing about House Democrats is that they'd had this geriatric bunch of leaders for forever, right? Like the big criticism was always- For like 20 years, yeah. Yeah, you've got Pelosi, you've got Steny Hoyer, like it's this old guard. Jim Clyburn. Exactly. The old, old, like physically old guard. Everyone's in their 80s and then they don't do anything to kind of deepen the bench, right, to prepare the next generation of people. And I think there was a sense when Hakeem Jeffries became, you know, the, the, top, the tip of the spear and then you have Aguilar and Catherine Clark, almost like this was perfunctory. Like you need to give this job to somebody who's younger, to somebody who, you know, diverse because the Democratic Party values that in a way that Republicans don't. And, you know, well-liked, it can't be a huge fringy person. But I think there was a sense of kind of like, let's just shoehorn these people in because the torch needs to be passed. And it wasn't necessarily passed to these people because they were like huge rising stars in the party. I think it was more they were loyal to the old guard. They're kind of like good, dependable Democrats and, you know, can can speak publicly. And that's, that's kind of how we arrived at this, this triumvirate. But I I did really get a sense this week that people like like Hakeem Jeffries a lot, that they trust him a lot, that there's just a great sense of kind of coherence among the the caucus that they I think they feel kind of at least in this case, and obviously this is the the best way to get unity is when the other party is exploding, <laughs> but there it 
there really was uh, like no divides between the kind of ideological wings. And when people tried to serve up kind of schisms, especially kind of rooted in the Israel-Palestine stuff, because that's where there might be some partisan difference on the left to exploit, mm-hmm. largely has been batted down and kind of you get the conversation refocused on to the Republican chaos. Right, right. It's interesting to me because I was wondering, I mean, I think it's almost unprecedented in in modern American history that you have this kind of handoff where not only is it not, you know, kind of factional and aggrieved and everything, but you still got Pelosi there who's man at, you know, normally the old person's got to leave. They usually resign from Congress to get out of the way because you've been, you know, you've been leader. You don't want to be a backbencher and all that kind of stuff. But she's been, she's there. She's, you know, you see, you see the leadership there on that one desk and Pelosi's kind of a few seats back and, and they've managed to do this thing where she's clearly still playing some mentoring role with Jeffries, but without having it be any sense like, oh, Nancy's still running things. She's got this new guy as like the figurehead or something like that. But what, what struck me is, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember precisely when he was first elected, but Hakeem Jeffries has only been in Congress for I don't know, a decade, maybe, you know, give or take, something like that, you know, relatively new in Congress. And I remember when, you know, from 2018 to the current Congress, when it was kind of like, okay, what's the transition going to be? It was everybody's like, well, you know, Hakeem Jeffries, obviously. Where, you know, it, it wasn't even, it wasn't even like, well, you know, the, the establishment has made the decision kind of like, I guess to the extent that they did, they made it so overwhelmingly that no one even kind of suggested anybody else. And that was it. And I I will say that with, uh, you know, Aguilar from California, I've really enjoyed his nominating speeches. I mean, that it's a kind of a nice assignment, you know, kind of half toasting vocals for, uh, for Hakeem Jeffries and half kind of like, you know, crapping on the Republicans. But he's good at it. He's good at it, right? It's it's fun listening to him, listening to him give a speech. And it's not just that he's younger. I, I'm sure he's younger than I am, frankly. Um, but it's not just that he's younger. But in ways that Steny Hoyer or Nancy Pelosi can't do, he's speaking a younger language. It's not just that he's probably, I guess he's in his 40s or something like that. Um, it's not just that he's physically younger. He's in tune with where the bulk of the electorate is generationally. And that makes a difference. Um, So yeah, you know, all those things flow together. In terms of the kind of Pelosi-Jeffries relationship, I think it's very fascinating for the reasons you say, and because there really does seem to be genuine affection between them. You know, like they kind of confab on the floor sometimes. It does seem to be, I think mentorship is like the perfect word. It, It seems like he kind of respects her and respects her legislative acumen, but she genuinely seems kind of like proud to see him in this elevated role. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, and it's the kind of thing where Pelosi has such devotion from the caucus, I think, especially amid the Republican struggles, but even just this close to the end of her tenure, it's just so abundantly clear that she was a historically able speaker and that she did an unrivaled job in kind of treating with 
kid gloves, the different factions of the Democratic Party and not, you know, not kind of like routinely shitting on the progressives. Like they really like her too. It's just, you know, when she voted, like every time she would get a standing ovation, she's beloved by the Democrats. I will say this, that, you know, that was not entirely the case in 2019. Right. There was there was some back and forth with AOC and her. And, you know, you had a number of people coming into Congress who were not, um, you know, some of them were sort of like DSA adjacent. They were they, they were they were not coming up through the normal channels. And there was some friction there. It, certainly in 2019, some of that was could be somewhat submerged because Trump was still in office. But as you say, over two or three years, everybody's everybody's best pals, basically, which yeah. is pretty striking. And I mean, to be fully contextual, legislation is not passing right now, you know, and the only legislation that is passing are these annual must pass funding bills where when you're dealing with a Republican House, there's there's not a lot of opportunity for kind of intra democratic fighting the same way that there was for the first two years of Biden's term where, you know, obviously we saw kind of like mansion v everyone almost like kill each other. Um, So it is in some ways a lot easier to be in the minority um, than the majority. But all that aside, I do think there are kind of internal bonds in the Democratic Party that right now are much stronger than what exists in the Republican Party. And a big part of that is even though we always know the Republican Party to be the homogenous one, you know, not the big tent one, but it's the right word march has in some kind of key ways really fractured it, even if on the surface, you know, they're they're all basically Trump people, right? They're all kind of like going along that way, but they don't have the same priorities or goals of of being in Congress. Whereas Democrats, like, sure, there's going to be some sunlight between them on some policy stuff, but at least you can still say the overarching ideologies of the Democratic Party are still intact in a way that with Republicans, the old fashioned kind of like, you know, small government, um, you know, hawkish kind of st- like that doesn't really exist anymore in a kind of cohesive way. I mean, the thing that jumps out to me is, I mean, I think we all remember in 2021, in 2022, there was a lot of tense moments, a lot of disagreements, um, you know, all the, I mean, a lot of them between the chambers, you know, House versus Senate, as there often is. And that really tells the story more than anything else, because we have to remind ourselves that Nancy Pelosi had the same margin as as Kevin McCarthy did. She had the tiniest, you know, four or five seat margin. And there was a lot of stress, a lot of uh, tense going, a lot of disagreements, but you didn't have these breakdowns, right? And and I think what you can see is, and a lot of this is uh, uh, to Pelosi's credit, um, I mean, A, you got a lot of critical stuff passed. But even with all those disagreements, you didn't have basic breakdowns in trust, right? People were basically, there wasn't, you know, you didn't have sort of like a kind of progressive rebellion, 
you know, we're kind of like, you know, we're being sold out by the establishment. We're not, you know, all the, the things we ran on are not being addressed. And you also didn't have a, you know, you had a little bit with Josh Gottheimer and the you know, severing the infrastructure bill from the rest of the, you know, what turned out to be the Inflation Reduction Act. So you had some of that, but you didn't have a real breakdown on either side. And that's very different. And as you say, it's pretty easy to do that now since you're in the opposition and there's kind of, you know, everybody's unified by making fun of Republicans, but they were basically able to do it even under under a lot of coalitional stress. Totally. And I think fundamentally, a big part of that is the new guard in the Republican Party, you know, the newest iteration of the Tea Party and kind of like Gingrich before it. It's all rooted in the sense of anti-leadership, anti-party even, you know, very kind of individualistic. You know, you've got the strong libertarian kind of vein. But for those people, being embarrassed as a party is even an accomplishment. Yeah. You know, it's not something to be to avoid. Um, this kind of chaos is not a deal breaker for them because they are anti-institutionalists. Whereas the left wing has never been like that, you know, and they do, of course, they do things that like kind of piss center Democrats off and they definitely try to pull the party to the left, but they have never been the same kind of bomb throwing. I'm going to embarrass you know, Nancy Pelosi or Hakeem Jeffries, and then I'm going to turn around and go on MSNBC and talk about it. Like that strain just does not exist within the Democratic Party. And this is just kind of the natural endpoint where Republicans have made their whole shtick. We hate government and we are anti-governing. Like, of course, this is the inevitable endpoint of that, you know, that kind of what is the word I'm looking for? Mutation, that yeah, kind of that, development. Yeah, that, that pathogen, right? Yeah, exactly. It, that's, that's the natural uh, end stage of it. I mean, I was struck when this, you know, when this whole thing got started with 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 Matt Gates. how quickly whenever he gets in a, you know, jostle with the rest of his caucus, how quickly he's talking about the uniparty you know the 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 swamp and and the swamp in a way that is entirely inclusive of you know basically the entire Republican Party except for his eight dudes and and Nancy Mace exactly right? so let's uh, let's finish up I mean we kind of alluded to this but as far as you know what you know we're back to season three of caucus next week what are we what are we looking at so you know we'll have. For a Monday, but maybe Tuesday, we've already got, as you mentioned, like six or seven people having thrown their hats in the ring, which sounds like an awful lot of weeding out to do in a 24-hour period to me. Let me ask you this. Is there, do we know the caucus rules in terms of, like, if if there's 10, if there's 10 uh, candidates, you know, can you, can you get... 30 votes and you're the nominee, you know, does it work that way? Do they yeah, have runoffs? No idea. I, I can't usually, imagine they would allow that. that right. That's and too, because yeah. usually picking your speaker is, you know, automatic. Like it's, it's not usually yeah. something you fight over like this. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. And I wonder if all these guys will actually make it to the forum because to some degree, if you're like a super 
nobody and you don't have a lot of connections in the conference. And then you see, you know, like Tom Emmer is probably going to be the automatic front runner because he's the whip right now. And, you know, aside, not that the leadership apparatus really helped out McCarthy or Scalise all that much, right, but, right, right. you know, he's got like an iota more t- name recognition than say Austin Scott, who sounds like someone I could have just made up right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's going to, it's just, it's really hard for me to see. We've got maybe we're going to end up with like 10 people running in that neighborhood. They're all going to like go to this forum and give their little speeches. And this conference is going to come out and be like, no, we got our guy. We're going to vote for him now. And some of them, some of the members are already kind of, you know, Don Bacon was talking about this when I caught him coming out of the meeting. He was a, a kind of never Jordan. He's in um, a, a very blue district. So he's probably maybe the most vulnerable member. And he was saying, we need to have some kind of rules to enforce that you've got to vote for whoever gets the majority, right? Whether that be you get stripped off your committees or you lose your seniority, blah, blah, blah. Though, of course, a rule change like that would require the votes of the people who don't want to vote along with the majority, you know? So I just, it's hard for me to see in this moment coalescing happening that fast when we've got this many horses in the race and each of these horses has their own pals and like the people who they're on committees with. And it's just, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of chefs in the kitchen to turn around and then have a vote the next day and have somebody get to 217 who many days this week members have said, yeah, nobody could get to 217. So. Yeah, I I think we're going to, we are going to see we're going to see a lot, a lot more about the rules of their, of their secret election. Because again, if you have ten, you could easily have someone get thirty-five votes, and they're the so. And I don't think they're not going to let that happen. That's too, that's too crazy. Um, yeah, I know. Maybe we're going to see a ranked choice debut in the Republican <laughs> conference. Well, I, I guess, I guess, uh, you know, it could be that you've got to win a majority. I mean, that makes it simple. And then you have yeah. to keep electing and, you know, dropping out or whatever. But I think one of the, for our listeners, one of the issues here is that you don't have wide open races like this. This doesn't happen because even in our less hierarchical era, basically always leadership elections go in succession. You know, the majority leader goes, becomes speaker. The whip becomes majority leader. Um, maybe the deputy whip becomes majority leader. There's only, there's only a few people who even are, you know, in practice, even allowed to run. And when you have someone else running, it's usually as a kind of factional thing. Well, no, no one's told like it in Pelosi's long tenure. You had a few times when I think, uh, God, the guy who lost the Senate race in Ohio, whose name is escaping me now. uh, Oh, Tim Ryan. Yeah, Tim Ryan ran against her sometime, maybe in the late Bush years or something like that. And but it wasn't like he was going to be speaker. That was a thing of, you know, Democrats from more conservative rural districts saying like, hey, this lady from San Francisco, this is hard for us. Right. So but those are more like, you know, making a point, not like it's wide open. So, yeah. So I guess what. Okay, so so open mic night Monday, (laughs) um, caucus election Tuesday. And if they can actually get it together, you have a, a floor election Wednesday. It is difficult to see how you're gonna how that's really quite gonna happen i mean they they it's conceivable they could sort of you know high level people could sort of start talking over the weekend but i don't know you've got a lot of these a lot of these these you know uh bergman or 
Austin Scott, uh, I don't think they're going to, you know, they have at least some idea that they could pull like a hazard here and end up like third, you know, second in line to the presidency. I think it's going to, it's going to take them at least a few days to shake those guys out and, you know, move, move that along. Yeah. And the thing is, starting whatever, an hour ago when they kind of got out of their conference meeting and decided this is what they're going to do. They have now until noon on Sunday to announce their candidacy. So they have got that amount of time to kind of, you know, put up their test balloons and call people and see what's going on. Meanwhile, members are sprinting home, you know, like jet fumes flooding the hallways. Um, So even just logistically, not that easy to get a good finger in the wind when everyone's back in their districts. And honestly, probably like kind of unplugging because this has been a grueling, really tough, long hours week. So you're definitely I mean, the ambition here, though, is just we know people in Congress are ambitious. But when we were doing these kind of interviews after the conference, I would kind of jokingly ask some of these guys like Don Bacon or like Mike Kelly, I was like, "Uh, you know, do you want the job? And in a normal world, you'd expect them to be like, ha, please. But they're just like, well, you know, I, I think the speaker, I think it's a really difficult job. You know, you know, it's like they still won't even totally close the door to themselves because like that's the way these people are hardwired. So I mean, you've got some hell, people who are just like. It's a hell of a promotion. It's a hell oh, of a promotion. You're jumping so many spots on the ladder, you know, you're going from like factory worker to CEO. You've got a lot of people who are like, I'm not going to miss my shot here. No, I mean, it's it's. People forget that, you know, if you're a member of, if you're a representative in the House, you represent, you know, seven or 800,000 people. That's a pretty big thing. It's bigger than a lot of states. But on the Hill, you're a nobody. You're just some random that, that is, you know, in most cases has to, has to take the, um, you know, has to take the say-so of, of leadership. But like, that you can go from that to Speaker of the House, second in line to the presidency, the one who has to cut the deals with with Joe Biden. I mean, there, there's there, you know who would pass up that kind of promotion? It's a it's yeah. a totally crazy thing, and we have this you know this this wild set of circumstances where you really could have something like that, precisely because it may only be someone who is been behind the scenes and not had time or the kind of personality to make a lot of enemies or to kind of really show their cards, you know, kind of who they are, that someone like that could conceivably make it through. So like, like we said, it's going to take a, it's going to, it's going to take them a couple days to shake through the, the ambition shakes, (laughs) right. To get to something real. And I also just, you know, want to say before we wrap that, the biggest thing I've been interested in throughout is, are you going to change the motion to vacate rule? Because if it's still a one member threshold, whoever freaking emerges from this is going to be at risk of getting chased out of town in what, less than a month now, in a few weeks when it comes time to pass the next CR or to, you know, more fully fund the government. And that conversation, to the extent that it was kind of bubbling up after McCarthy put on the backest of back burners because it's now, you know, it's like that's bare fish to fry, you know, but it is crazy that you've got so many people who want this job who are mayhaps certainly doomed come a few weeks. Yeah. And it's the funny thing is, it's pretty hard to see how that's going to happen. Exactly. Because, any, because, you know, to do that, I mean, technically it's a secret caucus vote, 
but it's a secret caucus vote until Matt Gates and three of his friends say, too bad on the House floor if you do this. So we got all that to look forward to next week. Um, thank you for being patient with us as uh, as we had to delay because of because of uh, Jim. It's Jim Jordan's fault. Um, <laughs> you can all see that. Uh, so we will be back next week and possibly by Wednesday. We'll we're not going to have a speaker probably by when we uh, record the episode next week. But we may have more of a sense of what the lay of the land is, because as you've seen in in this episode, we have no idea who (laughs) we don't even know who's going to get stabbed in the back by Matt Gates yet. Right. (laughs) We're not even to that point. So uh, that's it for this week. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. All right. See you then. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.